Welcome again to Folsom Bible and the privilege of being here with the saints to open the Word of God and, and to worship our Lord. Thank you for the music. The, I know the hard work you guys put in and it's a blessing to my own soul. I just It's uh, my favorite time of the service, so thank you. I appreciate it very much. And so if you have a Bible, would you open please to the book of Galatians Paul's epistle to the Galatians chapter 3, and if you've been here, you know we've been working our way paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse through this great epistle of the Apostle Paul. Galatians chapter 3, our passage today, of course, is the final five verses, verses 25 through 29. I should like to read, though, from 23 to 29, just to get this flow here. And as we read through here, we, we title this The Children of Promise, The Children of the Promise. In verse 23, please, the Apostle Paul writes, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew or, nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to to promise. As you know, the Apostle Paul was compelled to write this epistle because of false teachers from the Jewish people who had come and infiltrated the church in the Galatian region, which is modern-day Turkey. And they came with their works righteousness system. They taught that faith in Christ isn't enough for salvation that you also had to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. They said to the Gentiles, non-Jews in essence, that they had to become like the Jews. They had to become Jewish in practice, live like a Jew in order to be justified. To these false teachers, salvation, justification was faith plus works. So Paul writes the book of Galatians, this epistle, to confront this soul-damning error to correct this false gospel and to protect the true gospel by putting forth the truth. The true gospel, we learn from this book, that which Paul was taught himself by the resurrected Christ is the same gospel that the first apostles taught, Peter, James, and John and such. The gospel that Paul preached, taught by Christ, is, of course, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The true gospel is justification is by faith alone. Faith plus nothing. The key verse of the book of Galatians is found in 2.16. I remind you again because this is the, the hub of this letter. It says in 2.16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, 
Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. He uh, beats the drum on that verse for sure. There is no doubt as to the, what he means in verse 16. Now, to be sure his readers understand the seriousness of the matter Paul said back in chapter 1, verse 8, if, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. He is to be anathema. He is to be damned. So the seriousness of the matter is, is Paul would say, anybody who preaches a works gospel should go to hell. That's what he says. Now, why such a statement? Seems rather harsh in our day and age. It's because there's only one gospel that saves. There's only one gospel that justifies. To distort this truth is to keep the hearers from salvation. To, destroy, to distort the true gospel keeps a hearer, keeps a sinner under the judgment of God. Because a distorted gospel saves nobody. Only the true gospel of free grace saves the believing sinner. The seriousness of this, again, not only is it, does he call anathema on the false teacher in chapter 1, verse 8. In chapter 2, verse 21, if there is any other way to be saved, then Christ died for nothing as it says in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Now, I don't think anybody's prepared to say that. So Paul writes to defend the truth, to defend his ministry, so that these folks who were saved by God through Paul's preaching, through his ministry, Paul writes that they would remain in the truth that they would stay the course, that they would not deviate off the true path. It's possible each one of us could be misled. So by God's grace, this gospel, this epistle of Galatians will help Folsom Bible stay the course and not deviate into a works system in any way. Now, to help them stay away from a works righteousness gospel, Paul vindicates his gospel. He, he connects it in chapter 3, paralleling it with the Abrahamic covenant. And he's going to show this connection in chapter 3. And he goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, which is a unilateral covenant of grace, as opposed to the Mosaic covenant, which is a, a covenant of works. The Abrahamic covenant is a unilateral contract, that means one way, whereby God promised blessings to Abraham and to his seed, and these blessings were for those who believed simply by faith. And God himself is the responsible party to fulfill the requirements of that covenant. Okay? We're just simply called to trust God. There is absolutely no human works involved in the Abrahamic covenant. In fact, if you remember when Pastor Max was preaching, when God cut, the covenant, cut that covenant, he put Abraham to sleep to show you just how unilateral it is. Right? While he was sleeping, God made a promise to show to us that it's all of grace, it's all of God. 
Now, he connects this, Paul does, to Abraham and not Moses. Now, remember, the Judaizers thought Moses was given in order to be a pathway to justification and salvation. Paul is vindicating his gospel of free grace by going back beyond Moses back to Abraham. And if you go to chapter 3, verse 6, notice what he says. He makes the connection here. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture in verse 8, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, not works, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed in you. Genesis 12, verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Paul is making this, he's vindicating his gospel of grace by connecting it to the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? Very important. Very important. The Judaizers, of course, were teaching that you must keep the law of Moses in order to be justified. They didn't understand Moses. The law cannot save a sinner. It can only damn the sinner because it demands absolute perfect obedience. As verse 10 in chapter 3, Paul says there, for as many is are of the works of the law are under a curse. Why are we under a curse? Because cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Okay? So Moses doesn't say Moses condemns because it demands perfect obedience and there's nobody who can perfectly keep the law of Moses outside of Jesus Christ. Okay? So they're under a curse, judged, Guilty, found wanting, deficient of righteousness, destined and deserved of hell. So Paul lays out for his readers the difference between Abraham and Moses when you look at verse 18 of chapter 3. Now we're building our way to our text, but look at verse 18. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Moses requires works. Abraham required faith, and it's by a promise. So if salvation is through a promise, if salvation, if justification according to Abraham, as Paul is saying, and Paul's gospel of grace, if justification is by faith alone, apart from works of the law, then why in the world is there the law? That's a fair question, and we looked at that last week in verse 19 because he says in verse 19, why the law then? Why was it added? Well, to summarize verse 19 through 24, the law of Moses was given not to save. It was not given as a pathway to justification, but to show the utter sinfulness of our sin. It was to show the utter evil of the sin that we commit. It was to show that it is the direct assault on the holiness of God. It was to show the utter depravity of my soul, that I cannot live right before God. It, it, it is the law of Moses was to show that, it, that my sin is a rejection of his sovereign, loving reign over me. It was to show that sin is not just some failure to do something. It is high treason against the king of heaven. It was to show the depths of it. It was to show you the seriousness of your sin and mine. It was to show that we are utterly depraved 
and destitute of any righteousness and any good. That's what the law came to do. The law did not come to justify. The law did not come to save. The law was not given by God even to sanctify. It was to show our utter sinfulness. As verse 22 would say, it was to show that we're all captured. We're all under shackles and in a spiritual prison, if you will. We're under the shackles of condemnation because the law shows us, condemns us. Both Jew and Gentile, there's no exceptions. Verse 24, the key there is tutor. Look at verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. This is fascinating stuff to me anyway. Tutor is a, is a, is a, was a slave hired by a father to be a guardian and a disciplinarian of his son, usually from the ages of 6 to 16 this slave, this tutor, would go with this son everywhere he went, not to teach, but to correct, to discipline. And usually it was harsh discipline. And it wasn't, it would be having a constant companion who was making sure you were doing things right. That's kind of an irritation. I would think I would try to ditch him once in a while, you know. I would probably say, hey, what's that over there? And run over there, right? Try to, just, just for a reprieve, just for a moment. But you can't. This guy, the, the pedagogos, was there to make sure the son walked the straight and narrow as determined by the father until a level of maturity as predetermined by the father was reached. That's what verse 24 is saying. That Therefore, the law of Moses has become our tutor to lead us, notice, to Christ. And the result is that we may be justified by faith. This is just, I just find that fascinating. So the goal of Moses is to point you to Christ, which is the fulfillment of Abraham. You see? Moses was given by God to assist you to make it to Abraham by faith, you see, to look to the fulfillment, to look to the seed, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The goal then of this tutor, the goal of God in the law is to see my utter moral bankruptcy, my hopelessness, my helplessness left unto myself, of ever being right before God on my own. It brings me to the cross where I see the Messiah dying in my place, paying my price, dying the death that I should have died, seeing that he is the means of my righteousness and my right standing before God. That's the goal of the law. Now, when you come to verse 25, and you start to look at our passage, Paul is showing the contrast here in our remaining passage here, remaining verses. Paul is showing, he's contrasting those under the Mosaic law and those under faith. He's showing that God has graciously changed our position before him. We have gone from a guilty, condemned prisoner who is under the shackles of the law, under its heavy burden and restraints and curses, we've gone from that into the blessings and freedom of sonship. The blessings and freedom which belong to the adult son, the adult child. 
Now, here in our text, verses 25 through 29, he puts forth three aspects of this great change in position. Or we might say, here are three permanent results of our faith in Christ. If you have faith in Christ, these three aspects are true of you. Look at what it says. In verse 25 through 26, we are now sons of God. In 27 through 28, we have union with Christ and union with each other. And lastly, in verse 29, as a result of our faith, we are heirs according to promise. Those are realities that are true of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 25. In 26, we see here that the first result of our faith is that we are sons of God. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Stopping right there. Note, here is a change. It begins with a contrast in verse 25, but now. It's a contrast with the previous position or condition. We are no longer in verse 22, shut up. We're no longer in verse 23, kept in custody. We're no longer slaves outside the family of God. We're no longer under the tutor, the guardian of the law. Since faith in Christ has come, according to verse 25, since Christ has come, actually, literally, to the planet, lived, died, buried, and resurrected, and we believe in him since that time, since that faith in that Christ, we have a change in position. We are now sons of God. We are now sons of God. We are no longer under the guardian, no longer under his confinement. He's not needed anymore. He has accomplished his purpose. He's brought us to the maturity that's predetermined by God the Father. The entire purpose of the tutor has been fulfilled in verse 25 when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, using the, the, the culture and the, the, the Roman child who's under the slave, who is the guardian, the tutor... The day that that boy looked forward to was the day that he was released from the tutor. What a glorious day in the life of the Roman child. What a glorious day for you and I who have been brought to the cross by Moses to see that we are utterly depraved and Christ died in our place. Here is like a graduation of sorts in verse 25 when it says, now that faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. Maybe it's more of a recognition. It's similar to uh, the Jewish bar mitzvah, the, the coming of age ritual for the, the son in the Jewish family, usually the age 13. According to the, the Jewish family, the bar mitzvah, this boy, when he reached the level of maturity, age 13, and they had this ceremony. The ceremony was recognizing that this young man is no longer seen as a child, but now is seen as a son of the Torah, is now seen as a, uh, a responsible child with all the rights and privileges that come with, a, with adulthood. It is to be of a maturity considered a mature young adult and all the rights and privileges that come with that, that's the bar mitzvah. 
Verse 25, now that faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. The tutor has delivered us to the point of the cross. In Also, perhaps, in the Roman culture, instead of the Jewish bar mitzvah, when, when the Roman child reached 16 or whatever the predetermined age was by the father, that age of accountability, that level of maturity was reached. They had a toga ceremony. Apparently, the young child, until the time he reached the maturity, wore a certain color toga. When they reached the maturity level, they took that toga off and replaced it with one of a different color that signified that this is now no longer a child, but this is an adult son with all the rights and privileges and responsibilities, you see. Here, then... You, the graduate would exchange this toga of a child for the toga of an adult. This is the background of this picture that Paul is painting here for us in Galatians. We are no longer under the tutor. We're no longer under the guardian. He's no longer needed. Verse 26 tells us, going to explain what he means by this verse in 25, no longer under a tutor, verse 26, for you are now... All sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Why is it you're no longer under a tutor? Because now you've been brought to faith in Christ Jesus. The law of Moses has brought you to that point where God has through the law. Notice what he's, he goes on in verse 26. And he, he moves on from we, because verse 25 says we're no longer under a tutor. Verse 26 for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, fascinating. You all who makes up the body here in Galatia, Jews and Gentiles, both who believe. So he's, he's lumping them all here, and he says to both Jews and Gentiles in verse 26, no longer are you under a tutor because y'all, both Jews and Gentiles, all of you are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It's a fact in verse 26. They're not becoming, they're not someday going to be. They are for a fact, verse 26 says, sons of God. They are continually sons of God, all of them, Jews and Gentiles who believe. And notice it's not through faith, it's not through, or it's not through, sorry, it's not through obedience to Moses that they, be, that they are sons of God, but it's by faith. It's by faith in Christ that they are sons of God. Now, this position, of this change, this glorious change, we go from sinners to sons of God. What a privilege. We are indeed his sons. We are his adult sons with all the rights and privileges that come with adult sonship. The law has done its purpose and brought us to this place. And when we're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are considered and are called actually sons of God by God. As God's adult children, we are the most privileged people on the planet, are we not? We are of His family. He is our Father. I am His Son. I mean, that he is my daddy. And all this is by grace, and it's, it's by promise. It's the promise of the Abrahamic covenant, not the Mosaic. By faith, 
We are the adopted sons of God. In Galatians 4, if you went down to verse 4 and 5, look at what it says. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, so that, the purpose, he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God adopts you as his son. Jesus is the son. We are the adopted sons. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says it like this. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. It's God's purpose. It's God's intention. It's God's kindness that adopts you as his son, and it's through faith, through faith in Christ. You are his adult adopted son. Now, this new position that we have of sonship, we're no longer a slave. We're no longer imprisoned in shackles of the law. We've been brought out of that. Now we are in the freedom. We stand in the freedom of sonship. Also, along with this new position comes this attitude that we find in verse 6 of chapter 4. We're going to see this in the weeks to come, but jumping ahead to 4, 6, notice what it says. Because you are sons, notice the definitive there. It's, it's, it's an indicative. You are for a fact sons, verse 6. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts and what does it move us to do? Crying, Abba, Father. Now, it's not just enough to be a son of God, as glorious as that is. But the emphasis of verse 6 of chapter 4, as a result of the Holy Spirit whom the Father sent into us. We are indwelt by the third person of the Trinity, who here is called the Spirit of his Son. And so then... Because the Spirit of Christ indwells us, the affection within the Trinity flows through us and out of us. As Jesus Christ would cry out, Abba, Father. And that term in Scripture is only used three times. And one of those times is Jesus in the garden. When he's suffering on our behalf, cries out, Abba, Father. In Luke, I think it is, right? It's a term of affection, of great affinity. It's a, it's a, it's a, some have said it's like the term that we use today for daddy. This is saying then, we then who were once slaves now are adult children, but not only just adult children in position, but our hearts toward our Father in heaven is that of Jesus Christ, and that is daddy, Abba Father. And it's the result of the Holy Spirit. This is part of that, and this is all by faith, and it's by grace. The Gospel of John says it like this. But as many as received him, Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were not, who were not born, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To be born of God. That's God's grace and God's power. 
And it's God who has brought you to the point of faith in Christ by convincing you through his law of your utter hopelessness and deficiency of righteousness. And he brings you to the foot of the cross to believe the gospel of grace that points us to Jesus as the sin bearer and the righteousness we need is his righteousness imputed. And so we stand in a new position before the God of heaven as an adult son. I've been brought to the point of the maturity predetermined and he receives me as his adult son. He pours his spirit into you which moves, gives you the affection for the father that is the same affection that Jesus the son has for the father. And you cry out, Abba, Father. You know you are with a fellow believer, don't you, when you pray? And they, they pray, and they, they pray with such a familiarity with God. Not in arrogance, not, not, in, not uh, with a lack of respect, but like a little kid asking daddy. A little kid who, who, who's, who's familiar with the God of heaven to such a degree because the spirit moves them and there's this great affinity and affection. That's a result of faith. This part of the change that God has brought. Why would anybody want to live according to Moses when Moses only damns you? We want to live by faith in Christ and, and, the, and we want to live according to what God says. And it says that you are my sons through faith. Through faith and my spirit draws you even closer and you call, you call the God of heaven daddy. That's beautiful. You know, you've been around people who say, oh, God of heaven, transcendent, glorious, holy one. That's all true. I'm not belittling that per se. But when I'm suffering and I have anguish and I have doubts, I'm saying, Papa, I need you, right? You want to be with people that have a, that have a familiarity with God. The church is made up of those who have the familiarity of God. This is the change brought about by God in your soul so that each of us, every one of us by faith, Jew or Gentile, and everybody in between, if there's such a thing, is a son of God through faith. And we cry out, Abba, Father. It's glorious. It's glorious. 1 John 3 says it like this. As far as the, the family and the children of God, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. It's the love of God the Father that he's granted you that calls you his child. We who were wretched sinners by grace and love and affection that's solely his choice. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God for a fact. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We are his children by his choice. We are, in fact, his sons through faith. The sonship is both for Jew and Gentile who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. I just had a thought as, we were think, as I was thinking through this. This sonship is for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. 
What is it? In a simple summary statement, what does it mean to trust in Jesus Christ? If that's the means by which, I think I should at least have a little handle on it. Because you always hear these things about faith, and faith is this, and faith in faith, and faith just to believe. And, you know, we're, our world's big about having faith. Just watch any sporting event. You know, they had faith in themselves, you know, and all this stuff. But what does it mean to trust in Jesus Christ? What does it mean to believe in him? Um, I, I think Romans 4, to me, is probably one of the best explanations. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 4. And Abraham is involved here. Remember, God made a promise to Abraham as an old man that he would have many descendants, natural descendants, as an old man with no children yet. And, God, and Abraham believed him. Well, verse 19 of Romans 4 says this, Without becoming weak in faith, talking about Abraham, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And even in those days, a 100-year-old man don't make babies. Okay, that's just not happening. That's why he's contemplating his body in light of what God has just promised. It's like, oh boy. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. So not only is he an old man, she's an old woman, right? Yet, listen now, with the respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And now listen. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. There's our Abrahamic covenant, right? The faith of Abraham, which is what I want to put forward to us, is taking God at his word. We are fully assured that what God has promised, he's also able to perform. He made a promise to Abraham, but that's not a promise to you. What is the promise he made to you is that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and that his death was in your place and that he was actually buried and that he was actually raised from the dead. That's what you're supposed to believe, you see. That's the promise. What's the promise to those who believe that? Justification by faith. If you believe that, that God poured his wrath on Jesus Christ, buried him, and rose him from the dead three days later for your justification. That's what you and I are to believe in, in order to be included in the promises to Abraham. You see, that's God's promise. See, Abraham didn't see that to the degree that we do, right? Christ has come. The law condemns. We see Christ for who he is, as the gospel says. We see him dying in our place. We, we believe he's sinless. We see him actually dead, taken down, put in the ground, in the tomb for three days. We believe that the stone was rolled away. We do believe that he has been raised from the dead and is alive today at the right hand of the Father. We believe that. That is a credit to you as righteousness, you see. Taking God at his word, that's what we are doing.
Well, now look back in Galatians, please, when he says that the first result is that we are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The second result of our faith or the second aspect of our change in position is found in verses 27 and 28, and it is union. We are in union with Jesus Christ and union with other believers, if you will. And this is fascinating and demands much more attention than I'm going to give it, but hopefully I can do it justice here. Think of this. In verse 27, it says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And at the end of verse 28, he says, For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, every blessing of God, every Excuse me. Every blessing of the Abrahamic promise, of the Abrahamic covenant, is ours by virtue of this union with Christ. Because Christ is the object, Christ is the recipient, Christ is the fulfillment of all the blessings of God. He, of all the promises of God, it comes through Christ Jesus. By virtue of our union with Christ, the blessings of Abraham are ours, you see, this is what 27 is saying. And he says, notice again here, for all of you who were baptized into Christ. Notice again the word all. The you there, though it doesn't show up in the English, is y'all down Alabama, right? For all of you, y'all, were baptized into Christ. Now, baptized. This, some would say this is water baptism in the name of Christ. I'm going to say that's not what this is. I'm going to say this is a dry verse. This is a dry baptism, okay? Why do you say that? Well, baptism itself, the word baptizo, literally means to immerse under, to submerge, or to place into. Okay, it has a meaning, and that's what that word baptizo means. When it's used for water baptism... It's referring to the actual, literal, physical act of being placed under or immersed into or submerged in the water, which, by the way, negates any thought of sprinkling baptism, right? Because that's not baptism. That's being annoyed, <laughs> sprinkled, right? To be baptized is to be placed under the water. Now, the New Testament uses this word baptizo to refer to non-water baptism just as it does here in verse 27 for instance notice again for you who were baptized into christ christ is the one whom you are placed into now listen to first corinthians 10 verse 2 paul uses this word but he refers it to moses listen now first corinthians 10 1 through 2 for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. He's talking about ancient Israel coming out of Egypt. And all were baptized into Moses. Baptized into Moses. Well, this is not a water baptism. There's nowhere in the Torah that shows Israel being baptized like you and I were baptized when we believed. This is being baptized into Moses. This is being placed into Moses. This is being united with Moses. Now think of this. The emphasis of 1 Corinthians 10 is it looks backward to the exodus of Israel coming out of Egypt following Moses is the shared experience by all of them where it says 
all were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses. So it's emphasizing the shared experience of all those Israelites who were following Moses to the promised land. They were all said to be placed into Moses. Thus, that's indicating their unity, their oneness, their, their solidarity with him in following him has nothing to do with water baptism, okay? So then, when you bring that idea to our thought here in Galatians, this is what Paul's meaning here. Think of this now. At the moment of conversion, you were immersed, you were placed into not Moses, but Christ, okay? Um, every one of us at conversion is placed into Christ. Everyone who's baptized into Christ is converted person. Everyone who is baptized into Christ is a justified person. Not everybody who goes into the water and comes out is a justified person. Amen? There's a lot of people who are false converts who get baptized who just took a bath. They were not, nothing happened to them. But this baptism is a baptism that's done to you at the moment of conversion, placed into Christ. Listen to Romans 6, please, because Paul gives a better, further, expansive illustration of what we're trying to say here. Listen to Romans 6, 3 through 5. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him. How? Through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now listen to what, he's, what this baptism means. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's a dry verse. Again, the same idea placed into Christ so that you are some the, 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 the mysterious spiritual union with Christ Jesus so that his experience is yours. Because as it says there, you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his death. In Christ you died. You can't explain that other than what it says, right? It's just a, it's a spiritual reality for every person whom the Father saves is he places them, baptizes them, immerses them into Christ so that when he died, you died. And when he was buried, you were buried. And when he rose from the dead, you rose from the dead by virtue of that spiritual union, being baptized into Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians 13. How did this happen? Well, for, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. The Holy Spirit is the one who places you into Christ. Spiritual baptism happens once and for all, one time. At the moment of conversion, you were baptized into one body. You were baptized into Christ. Whether Jew or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So then. As a result of our faith in Christ, 
we have a change in position. And then since we're no longer slaves incarcerated under the condemnation of the law, but now we walk and stand in the freedom and blessings of adult sonship. We are sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And all the rights and privileges that are contained therein. We also are, every one of us, placed into Jesus Christ. We are immersed into Christ. Every single justified believer, justified person, is one with Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, By His doing you are in Christ Jesus. As a result, He became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. By virtue of that union, you see, he's our wisdom from God. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification. In Christ, you are set apart from all others. In Christ Jesus, he is your redemption, you see. By virtue of that union with Christ, that the Holy Spirit works. You don't feel that. It's not an experience. You only learn it from the text. You learn it from divine revelation written down on the page here. You don't feel like, oh, I feel like I'm kind of hooked on to Jesus today, you know? No, that's the pizza you had last night, right? <laughs> Ephesians 1, 3, listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ. In Christ. Again, that's that idea of spiritual union with Christ Jesus. We are in union now, listen, now with the Son of God. And we are considered adult sons with all the privileges and rights that come with that position when you believe. Our union with Christ is a result of our faith. And in verse 27, he follows that. Notice what he says in 27. Those who were baptized also have clothed yourselves with Christ. Fascinating. So not only are you and I placed in Christ, we, as a result of that, have like this jacket put on Christ. And the baptism is in a passive voice, so somebody did that to you. The second half of verse 27 as you notice, clothe yourselves. You have a part in that one. So as the Spirit worked upon you and placed you into Christ, you, as a result of that faith in Christ, have clothed yourselves, have covered yourself, have dressed yourself with Jesus Christ. Perhaps Paul has in mind here the Roman ritual of changing the toga where you take the, the child's toga and throw it aside and put on the, the adult son's toga, that change, you see. No longer do you have your filthy rags of who you once were in Moses. You throw that away, and now you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The robes of righteousness, the white robes of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our covering. And notice, each and every one of us, the emphasis of the text is that Jew and Gentile, each and every one, whether you're just now saved or whether you've been saved 50 years, whether you're a high and mighty leader of the world or just a peon like Tony, if you're in Christ Jesus, you are equally in union with the living Son of God 
and you have been placed into Christ and you have clothed yourself with Christ. That's pretty cool. No matter who you are, in Christ, if you believe, this has happened. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. It's just amazing. Now, what does it mean to put on Christ? Well, it means to put on his character. It means to put on his likeness. It means to be like him. It means that when someone sees you, who do they see? Who do you resemble? Who are you starting to speak like? Who are you starting to act like? Who are you starting to think like? You see, it's a graphic way to describe how Christ's life and his presence and his righteousness envelop a believer. To be clothed with Christ is to be clothed with all his perfections. Think of that. So practically speaking, as you learn about Jesus Christ from the New Testament, you have brought him on. You want to be like him. You have clothed yourself with Christ as a result of that, the Father looks at you as though you are Jesus Christ. He sees his perfection as your perfection. See how glorious the union with Christ is. That was Saturday's lesson, eh? There's a lot to that. <laughs> I, I'm not going to go there. You have to listen to Saturday's teaching and, and get the depth of what union with Christ really entails. It's everything. It's absolutely everything. And so I'm just going to just stay on the top of the water here and just say, by virtue of that union with Jesus Christ, and we're putting on Jesus Christ, putting on his character, putting on his perfections as we know him, we are clothed with him so that the Father in heaven, the judge, looks down upon us and sees his Son. He sees Christ. Therefore, my acceptance with him is not based on my work. It's based on his son's work. It's not based on my righteousness and my pityness. It's based on his perfection. And so you have full access to heaven based on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's glory. That's the gospel of free grace. That's the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled. Listen to Romans 13. Let us behave properly as in the day, not as in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity or sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Contra to succumbing to lust is to put on Christ, which then is telling me is to be like Christ, is to think like Christ, is to walk like Christ. First John even says it like this, 2, 6. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So when you were converted, when you believed, the Spirit placed you in Christ, you clothed yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ, his perfections cover you, his life envelops you, his character envelops you. You are seen by the Father as though you are his son, Jesus Christ. Each and every one, be they Jew and Gentile, does not matter. So all believers in Christ. Now listen, equally, all believers are covered with Christ. 
There's not a part of you that's not covered. It's not like at nighttime, you know, the blanket and your part of your legs out there, it's not covered, you know. You, you are fully covered. Every single believer is covered with Christ so that when one looks at the believer who is seen but Jesus, when the Father looks at a believer who is seen but Jesus and his righteousness. Remember Galatians 2.20. Paul said this, hinted to this a little while ago in 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Christ in me. You in Christ, Christ in you. That happened at conversion. It's inseparable. It can't be undone. It's fixed. Therefore, your eternal security is just that. Eternally secure in Christ. You know why? Because it's based on Christ. It's based on God. Remember, Abraham was sleeping. <laughs> and you and I were spiritually dead. And he brought us in. And look at verse 28. In the, in the flow of thought here, verse 28 shows the, the, how the union affects everyday life. Notice what it says. Because we are all sons of God through faith, we were all baptized into Christ and have clothed ourselves with Christ, each and every one of us who are believers. Then verse 28 says, Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, the point here is to show that there's no distinctions that have barriers to anybody who comes to be justified by faith in Christ. Whether you're Jew or Greek, you come the same way you come to Jesus Christ. There's no barriers. There's no distinctions as far as spiritual distinctions. But there's certainly what Paul's teaching in verse 28 is not getting rid of distinctions because there's still Jews, there's still Greeks. They're still slaves, they're still free, they're still male, they're still female. It's just there's no barriers. Any cultural barriers, any ethnic barriers, any gender barriers to coming to Christ for justification. As we hear many times, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. It's for sinners, be they male or female, be they Jew or Greek. Come, come to Jesus. That's what he's saying here. But many will take verse 20. It has to be mentioned because it's often abused, and I'm just going to mention it here. Many want to use verse 28 to support female elders and pastors and preachers. See there, there in, in Christ, there's no distinctions, so, so women can be elders and women can be preachers. Um, that's not Paul's point here. That's not what he's addressing here. This same apostle, I remind you, under the very same Holy Spirit as here in Galatians, wrote very clearly in other places. Can I remind you? Yes, I can. 1 Corinthians 11.3, listen to this. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Headship is mentioned there. 1 Timothy 2.11, some of our people's, um, some people's favorite text. 1 Timothy 2.11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. That doesn't go over well some places. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. 
it's not cultural. He goes all the way back to the creation, the original creation. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women, women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity and self-restraint. My point is Galatians 2.28 is not allowing no distinctions, therefore allowing women to be elders and pastors and teachers and apostles and leaders in the church. How about Ephesians 5, 22 through 24? Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife and Christ is also head of the church. He himself being savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. How about children obeying their parents? How about submitting to governing authorities? There remains these order. There remains this order. And can I remind you that Galatians was written in 49 A.D. The text that I just read to you, 1 Corinthians was written in 55. Ephesians was written in 60, 62. And 1 Timothy was written in 62 to 64. So whatever he said in 49 apparently has been corrected in the later passages. If you want to say Galatians 3.28 allows that. It doesn't. Okay? And I have to say that because that text is so abused. As you can see from Galatians, that's not Paul's intent here. Paul's intent here is that in Christ Jesus there is this union. And that in Christ Jesus, male, female, Jew, or, or Greek, there's no barriers to anyone coming to place their trust in Jesus Christ for justification. Come, come all, come, come. Amen? Amen. Finally, moving on here. Look at the third and final change in our position. Here's his climax in this text in verse 29. It says, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. The third change is that we are heirs of promise. From eternal darkness and judgment to heirs of promise. If you are Christ, as it says in 29, if you belong to Christ, or literally if you are of Christ, if you are his possession, then you are Abraham's descendants, Abraham's seed. And again, it's not the natural seed that he's speaking of because it's either Jew or Greek. It's those who believe. It's, so then, to be an heir of promise is not reserved for family tree or blood, certain bloodlines, but it's to those who believe in Christ. As verse 29 says, if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. You're not heirs according to promise through works righteousness, through circumcision, through keeping the law. You are heirs of promise by faith. By faith. Now this is awesome in, in closing this. You then, according to verse 29, are heirs according to promise. You are scheduled. You are also qualified to receive the inheritance promised by your heavenly Father. Notice what he has said already in verse 16 through 18 of chapter 3. Verse 16 says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. 
He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one, and that into your seed, that is Christ. The Messiah is the seed. Verse 17, what, am I, what, what I am saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Finally, 18, for if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. You are heirs according to promise. Because if you belong to the seed, Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, Abraham's seed. Heirs according to the promise of God, not works. In Colossians 1.12, it says there that the Father, we should give thanks to the Father because he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. God has qualified us. God has made us what is needed to be an heir of his promise. He has called us out of darkness. He has get, granted us repentance and faith. That which is required, he has granted. The righteousness demanded is, 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 is placed on us through Jesus Christ, his righteousness, a foreign righteousness, in justification by faith. We are heirs according to a promise, not according to our works. Through faith in Christ, we are included in the future promises of God. Jew and Gentile. Ephesians 3, 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Jew and Gentile are included in the promise of God. Romans 4, 13. This is glorious. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants or seed that he would be heir of the world was not through the law but through the righteousness of faith. He is promised by God to inherit the world, right? To inherit, to inherit that which belongs to God. Listen to Acts. I just have a few here. Acts 20, verse 32. Paul writes, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This inheritance was a, was a major aspect of Paul's preaching. It was a major aspect of his theology. There is an inheritance, beloved, that he has for those who are his rightful heirs. We are his heirs through faith in Jesus Christ. We are immersed into the one to whom the promises were made so that in Christ Jesus, all those who are in him also will participate in the promises that God promised him. That's glorious, and it's of grace, and it's promise. Listen to Titus 3, 5, and 7. Paul writes, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Why? Listen. So that being justified, notice the connection, justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Being justified by faith places us in the realm of an heir. And we will be heirs of eternal life. 
Eternal life is not primarily, even secondarily, longevity. It's a type of life. It's a kind of life. It's God's kind of life. This is eternal life, John 17, 3, right? To know God the Father and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's this intimate knowledge of God and his Son. That's eternal life defined in John 17, 3. We are inheritors. We are heirs of God. We are heirs of God himself. He's, he's the package. <laughs> he's the package. Eternal life, the hope of eternal life, the, 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 the confident expectation of what eternal life contains and means and the experience promised by God. We will inherit that. And that is for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Glorious. Now, almost finished. Listen, listen to Romans 8. I just love this. 8.17. Paul works his way through being a child and a son in Romans 8.17 and in the work of the Holy Spirit. And he says to us in verse 17, he says, And if children, if we are children of God, we're heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs or joint heirs with Christ. Now think about that. If indeed you're a child of God, the, 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 the fact of the matter is you therefore are of his family. He is your father. You are his child. You are his son. Therefore, he who owns everything has bequeathed to you via Christ all that's his. You're an heir of God. You are an heir that belongs to God. He says even further than that, you are a joint heir, a fellow heir with Christ. Now, let me ask you this. How much of creation has, does Jesus Christ slash God own? All of it. How much is yours? All of it. That which is by right, Jesus Christ, is ours by grace and adoption. He has bequeathed, the Father has bequeathed all that is His to His Son, Jesus Christ. We are in the Son. Therefore, all that belongs to Jesus by right belongs to us by grace. This is part of the change of position that Galatians is talking about. By faith in Christ, you're no longer a slave in shackles under Moses, but now you are walking in the blessing and freedom of Abraham. And the promise to Abraham is that he is the heir of the world. He's the heir of God. You are an heir of God. You are a child of God. More than a child of Abraham, you are a child of God. You are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And all that belongs to God and his son belongs to you. That doesn't make us arrogant. That makes us extremely, unbelievably grateful. Why would you want to go back to live under law? Why would anybody want to go live back in Moses? Moses was not given as a, as a template for justification or sanctification. Moses is fulfilled when you came to faith in Christ. Leave him alone. Applaud him. He is from God. It is holy. It's accomplished his purpose, though. And now we live by faith in Christ Jesus. And now Galatians 2.20. Let me finish here. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by working really hard to keep the law of Moses. No, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I like that a lot better, right? And so does Paul, and so does God. <laughs> so then, by virtue, in closing, by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ, we are brought into that which the Father has promised to Christ, the rightful heir. Everything that belongs to God belongs to Jesus, and everything that belongs to Jesus and God belongs to us who believe by grace. We are baptized into Christ, clothe ourselves with Christ, and in that spiritual union, we are, which is entirely of grace, entirely of grace. The kingdom is ours. The kingdom of God is what has been promised. And it's for those who believe. It's for us who believe. This salvation is so great. We have these new permanent positions that we just look at here. We are sons of God through faith. We have union with Christ in one another. And we are, we are together heirs according to the promise. Therefore, we are children of the promise. It is only through the gospel that we participate in this. It is only through faith alone in Christ alone apart from works of the law. This is why Paul so vehemently opposes any distortion of the true gospel. So then let us do the same. Let us protect this gospel by proclaiming it and living it. This is the only hope for a lost world. It is the only hope. And please don't leave here today without being sure that you are indeed trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Let us be faithful to speak this truth when opportunity comes and let us point them to Christ. Let us point them to Christ. You remember Acts 16, the Philippian jailer asked the apostle the most important question. He says, what must I do to be saved? To which Paul says, well, I'm glad you asked. Do you have a long list? No. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. All glory to him. Let's pray. Oh. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. I ask that you would take this and use it according to your will, that you would save and sanctify both. Have your way with us. Be glorified in and through us. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.